It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. They're still arguing about it this morning. The Remainers in chief have risen from their slumber to try and kill off once and for all any chance of leaving the European Union in the way that the government wants to. Five former Prime Ministers have all joined forces now to tell us what a terrible idea it all is, how breaking international law will change forever our respect and standing in the world, and why we must bow to our EU masters when it comes to our own lands and our own products. Well, thanks, but no thanks, guys. This Guardian, The Guardian this morning uh, is up to its old tricks as well. Another top-secret report has been unearthed uh, that warns of more thousands of lorries being stuck on more roads in Kent. And without a hint of irony, they then report that cases of anxiety have trebled in a decade. Could there by any chance be a connection? After telling people to be afraid of everything for years, they're now saying, apparently, there's a bit of anxiety in the world. I don't know what to do about that. I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll think about it later. Put it over there. There we are. That's a special one for the Guardian's media correspondent who seems to be obsessed with the fact that I keep tearing up the Guardian. Well, I don't keep tearing it up. They keep printing rubbish, though. I don't know why. Uh, coming up, of course, we'll be talking to Stuart Jackson, who is the former Special Advisor to Brexit Secretary David Davis. 0344 is the number. Coming up, we'll also be checking in with our favourite Northern Ireland security specialist, Colin Breen. He'll tell us why the EU is playing fast and loose with the terror threat in the region. And travel guru Simon Calder will also be here to explain why the rules around duty-free shopping are about to change for the better. And we'll be talking to Professor Carol Sikora, who's been good enough to join us from his holidays to explain why the COVID testing programme doesn't seem to be working as well as it should, but also to tell us what we can do to stop being frightened of the virus. We spoke a lot about this yesterday, about how uh, this uh, rule of six business uh, is probably not going to be obeyed by most people in this country, but also what the government needs to do to make sure that people are actually confident enough to go out, confident enough to go back to work, confident enough to use public transport and confident enough to get the economy moving again. 0344 499 1000. Also, in the last hour, I'll be asking this question. Have you turned to drink in the lockdown? According to a new study from the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the number of problem drinkers in the country has doubled to over 8 million since March. There's a little quiz that you can take uh, in the Daily Mail. I've taken it this morning. I'll be telling you precisely what the result of that was. But as ever, of course, we want to hear from you. Your thoughts, your opinions, your experiences, they're all part of the rich tapestry of common sense that we will weave over the next three hours. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here 
on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, some of you will have witnessed yesterday's kind of uh, pantomime in the House of Commons where basically Alok Sharma was due to get up and make the case uh, for Boris Johnson's new uh, internal uh, reports, its bill, uh, which basically supposedly, potentially breaks international law, depending on who you speak to. Uh, It turns out that Boris Johnson himself decided it would be a good idea for him to actually present the bill uh, for its first reading. Um, And instead of then changing up and not putting Ed Miliband in the chair, they decided to put Ed Miliband in the chair. Despite the fact that he's the opposite number of Alok Sharma, they should have surely, because Keir Starmer wasn't able to attend, thanks to him uh, having to self-isolate because somebody in his household may have coronavirus. Why didn't they put Angela Rayner up? Are they ashamed of Angela Rayner? Are they frightened of Angela Rayner? Is the Labour Party so sexist that they can't have a woman actually represent them as the leader of the party? If I was Angela Rayner right now, I'd be pretty cheesed off. And in fact, I might even consider stepping down as the deputy to Keir Starmer. Because what is the point of being deputy leader of the party if when the leader of the party isn't able to attend the House of Commons because of illness, you don't get to substitute for him? Can you imagine the conversation? Ed Miliband, yes, yesterday's man, a bloke who all the Labour rights think was, did a fantastic job. By the way, uh, the bill went through completely um, without any problems whatsoever. And so whatever Ed Miliband had to say, nobody took any notice of, as usual. But if you're Angela Rayner, you'd have to be sitting there going, what is the point of this? Why am I bothering? Why am I taking all this heat? Why am I being the subject of scrutiny? Why are people being critical of me because of the clothes that I wear? And in fact, whenever I get the opportunity to speak on behalf of the party, they don't let me. They've got a real problem with women in the Labour Party, haven't they? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk now to Stuart Jackson, who is, of course, former special advisor David Davis, former um, political uh, Tory MP as well, now founder and director and strategic counsel at Political Insight. Stuart, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Wouldn't you be ashamed if you were a woman in the Labour Party this morning, Stuart? I mean, what's wrong with Angela Rayner taking the helm when the, when the leader isn't available? Well, it is a little bit embarrassing from the point of view of the Labour Party, given that this is the party that extols the virtues of diversity and equality. Yes. We, in my party, have had two women leaders. Right. They can't even trust Angela Rayner on a complex issue uh, debating with the Prime Minister and Alok Sharma. And I, I think you're absolutely right. But, of course, they're peas in the pod. Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband, Miliband they're both... Uh, cosmopolitan, liberal, yeah. North London, L- New Labour. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a boys' club in the Labour Party. Yeah, you can't have a northern woman represented. You know, you can't have a woman's voice, especially if it's got a northern uh, twang to it. I mean, I find it really... I'd be really embarrassed if I was a member of the Labour Party this morning. It's a bit patronising. I don't see eye to eye with Angela Rayner, but I think, and she's wrong on most policy issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Naturally, I would say that. But she is... Uh, a feisty, authentic voice of what the Labour Party used to be about in the north of England, which was representing working people. And I think if they are serious about reconnecting with those red wall seats in the northwest, in North Wales and in the northeast, they've really got to bring forward more authentic voices that people can uh, appreciate and people can relate to. And I I don't think having a, a failed leader in Ed Miliband uh, who, who had all sorts of image problems and led the party to a pretty calamitous defeat uh, in 2015. Well, it seemed, put him up it again seemed calamitous. It did seem calamitous then until Jeremy Corbyn took over. 
Well, everything's relative, Mike. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the Tory rebels, because Sajid Javid was one. Theresa May was one. Quite a few Tories abstained rather than actually voting against um, uh, the bill. But I seem to I, I would say that it's a bit disingenuous of some of these MPs who fought on the Get Brexit Done platform and have now turned on uh, Boris Johnson to say, well, we don't think you're doing it the right way. Well, I'm sorry. There is such a thing as, as, as uh, sort of collective responsibility, isn't there? There's a saying you'll know, Mike, that uh, revenge is a dish best eaten cold. Yeah. And a lot of these people uh, were either overlooked or sacked by Boris Johnson. And this is their revenge, to a certain extent, to cause as much mischief. I have to chuckle a little bit about the mainstream media. You know, they're, they're, the reporting of it last night was very much, you know, Boris suffers rebellion, Boris scrapes through you know, a 77 majority on the second <laughs> reading of a bill is not scraping through. Right. And even, I don't think the, the this bill will have any trouble next week because for one simple reason is that the uh, conservative support in the country, people who voted conservative in December, are solid behind this policy. Mm. They may not fully understand it, but they understand the rationale for it. And Leave voters are, are significantly in favour of it as well. And whilst that coalition of support can be kept behind the Prime Minister in this policy, then that, that's fine. And those MPs should, Conservative MPs should support it. I would also say it's getting a bit irritating to hear people who've never taken any real interest in international treaty obligations lecturing Brexiteers that this is quote, breaking international law, unquote. It is not. Mm. We have a system called the dualist system. We do not give direct effect to international treaties directly the minute they're signed. We have to have domestic legislation to give legal effect to that. Yeah. In other words, as Gina Miller showed in 2016, it is ultimately parliament that is sovereign and can always change a treaty in domestic law. And, mm. and that's something that these uh, people are not conceding. And I think it's rather disingenuous. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Because when you see somebody like, say, George Freeman, uh, who seems to waver around like some kind of, you know, flag in the wind. You're never quite sure which way he's facing. You know, one minute uh, he's all over us like a rash here at Talk Radio. The next minute he disappears off the face of the earth and joins some kind of miniature cabinet position. Then he's now attacking the government from outside of the tent, it would appear. I mean, I don't know what his game is. Well, there are a lot of people that are still deeply unhappy about the decision of the British people over four years ago mm. and are dying in the ditch still over Brexit. To be fair to David Cameron, he wasn't taking that p uh, position. I know you did mention him amongst the five former yes. Tory leaders. Yeah. But he, I think he did take a reasonable and moderate and nuanced approach yesterday. Yes, he I didn't agree. take the sort of slightly deranged approach that, that John Major constantly takes, which is that, you know, this is appalling, it's terrible for our international yeah. reputation, let's bow down and prostrate ourselves in front of the EU, mm. which is essentially Major's point of view and Blair's. Right. 
basically, Cameron said, well, it doesn't look particularly right, but I can kind of understand where the Prime Minister's coming from. And I think that was probably the right approach. Yes, and he also said, uh, by the way, this is a possible situation rather than a probable situation, and it's something that the, the government reserves the right to do if it decides it's necessary to do it. And it's by no means an absolute um, you know, ab- you know, promise to do it. But the thing that made me laugh yesterday was Sky TV's coverage, right? If you were watching that, you would have thought that we were invading uh, a country illegally or something. Oh, sorry, that was the last time Tony Blair broke international law, wasn't it? Um, you know, there's no real you know, consequence. It's going to be anywhere near as bad as the result of that particular breach uh, in this particular case. Well, it is gilding the lily to be lectured on propriety and <laughs> international treaty obligations by uh, Tony Blair on so many different levels. I yeah. mean, he, he promised a referendum on a number of EU treaties uh, and and in the Lisbon Treaty in particular, and it, it actually never happened, no. of course, as we know. But, you know, the fact is what's fundamentally at stake here is goodwill and negotiating in good faith. And when Boris signed the withdrawal agreement and, and enacted it in UK legislation at the beginning of this year, there was an assumption that they did want to have a free trade agreement, uh, the EU, and that, that they would negotiate in good faith. But when they and they and incidentally, they have not denied this. When they infer that they will blockade Northern Ireland, they will stop goods from GB going to Northern Ireland, they will regard Northern Ireland as a de facto colony uh, of the European Union, a sovereign, a part of a sovereign state that is, has left the EU. I think that is a serious matter that any self-respecting member of parliament needs to take notice of. And, we, you know, we're not going to concede that the people of Northern Ireland are, you know, a secondary uh, UK citizenship. That is not going to happen. And we have a responsibility to keep our country united. And the other thing is, all these Tory MPs that vote against this bill and and rebel next week, they're actually making no deal much more likely because they're cutting the legs from under the Prime Minister in his capacity uh, to negotiate a free trade agreement by the end of October. Yeah, and interestingly enough, watching Boris yesterday, you know, it was war- it was kind of um, uh, it was reassuring in a way because it was Boris Johnson back to doing what he does best, which is you know a bit of bluster, a little bit of sort of you know fist pumping, a bit of um, ha- hand uh, uh, shaking, and all of the kind of things that he does very very well at the dispatch box. And I just wish that he could somehow transfer that. Um, that feeling that he had yesterday into the COVID problem, which I realise is a bit more difficult to solve. But at the end of the day, you know, he's being criticised at the moment by people in his own party for really not being decisive enough. And he's being very decisive when it comes to Brexit. But what can we do to make him more decisive when it comes to COVID? Well, if you look at prime ministers over the last 20 or 30 years, every prime minister leaves office completely knackered, frankly, totally exhausted, frequently ill, although you wouldn't know about it, whether it was Margaret Thatcher, who sadly succumbed to dementia, Mm. uh, John Major, who I think it got very tense and he got very overwrought from time to time. Uh, Even relatively young people like David Cameron and Tony Blair were absolutely exhausted at the end. This is a prime minister who is essentially facing two major crises. One is disentangling the UK from a 40 five-year-old relationship um, in good order when the EU specifically want to make it as difficult as possible and of course a generational crisis health and economic crisis we've never seen before and on top of that he's had a baby 
uh, or his uh, fiance's had a baby, uh, and he's been very close to death. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised he looks knackered, and I'm really not surprised that he he's not on top form 24-7 yeah. because he has had so much on his plate. No, listen, I get all that, but it's not so much about his own personal health and his own personal kind of state uh, of, of affairs. It's more to do with the fact that the political decision-making that he has not done over COVID has, has started to cause problems, not just in the country, but but in the sort of the loyal uh, electorate, the people who voted for him are telling me, if he doesn't sort this out, if he doesn't sort out immigration, doesn't sort out law and order, and doesn't sort out this COVID business, there's going to be a problem in four years. Well, I, I agree with that, Mike. And I, I think a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of Brexiteers wish him well and are still supportive. But equally, I have to say uh, that people are getting more and more annoyed about the, the handling of COVID, staunch Conservatives. I do think he needs a reshuffle. I think he needs to bring perhaps some fresh blood into the cabinet. Yeah. He needs uh, really to reboot the, the focus of the government around COVID and post-Brexit. He needs more good news stories like the um, Japanese free trade agreement yes. that was signed last year. Uh, and he needs to bring back that sense of joie de vivre, optimism, future focus, that Labour are nowhere near articulating right. at the moment. And and you're right, if, if we had a more competent and credible Labour opposition and leader, he would be in a lot more trouble. But yeah. he is still level pegging or slightly heading the polls. I think if that changes, there'll be a lot more pressure on him. Oh, I agree with that. Yes, Keir Starmer has been absolutely hopeless. I mean, despite, again, what everybody says in the Labour Party about how great he is and about how, you know, his friends in the media talk about how brilliant he is at the dispatch box. I find him incredibly tedious, incredibly boring, uncharismatic... And and completely unable to cut through any form of sort of opposition properly to the Prime Minister. But I don't know what you've heard about uh, Prime Minister's questions tomorrow, Stuart. Uh, I'm assuming that Keir Starmer will not be able to do it. Um, surely it will be Angela Rayner put up for that, will it? Just to go back to our original I would theme. imagine it. Yeah, I would imagine it will be Dominic Raab versus uh, Angela Rayner. I'm told he and might be will... away, though, so I'm not sure if it will be him. I think he might be in Washington. Uh, then I've no idea. You're putting me on the spot there. Sorry. It might be, but <laughs> but 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 it, in that um, in that it's it's form for the opposites to face each other. So it wouldn't be normal yeah. for uh, Angela Rayner to face Boris Johnson. No, uh, there's a sort of uh, I hesitate to use the term gentleman's agreement, right. but. Uh, there, there's a sort of agreement between the whips that equals face up, face yes. off. So obviously, if Dominic's away, then it'll go to the next person, whoever that might so be. So we think it might be Rishi Sunak, um, in which case they might take the opportunity again to hand it to somebody else. But um, if they hand it to Annalise Dodds, that would be hilarious um, as well. Well, she's uh, desperately underwhelming. Uh, she really is. Dodds. She's not. Even Labour figures are saying that she's not landing a glove it'd be, on, it'd on be like, It'd be like Real Madrid taking on Woking. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 pretty that's pretty uh, accurate, I think, Mike. Yeah, it, Rishi Sunak obviously is being talked up very much as a future leader. I think if you're sensible, you never let that sort of comment get to you you know, get to you. You never develop the hubris and arrogance that, you know, it's a shoe in, I'm going to be leader. No. I don't think, I've not met one person who's ever said a bad thing about Rishi Sunak. Mm. He's very popular in the parliamentary party and in parliament generally. But obviously he's, he's giving away money now. The real tough times will come when he's actually got to put 
taxes up yes. potentially yeah. if that happens and cut public expenditure and then his metal will be on display as to whether he will be as popular with the parliamentary party and the wider electorate absolutely right well Stuart it's going to be a fascinating week anyway thank you very much indeed Stuart Jackson former uh, Tory MP former special advisor to David Davis now uh, from Political Insights The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio let us say a very good morning to Professor Carol Sakura, one of our favourite uh, voices on the whole COVID scenario, a man that uh, always sounds reasonable, a man that always sounds uh, as though he knows what he's talking about. Professor Carol, a very good morning. Welcome back. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I know that you uh, have taken a bit of time off to take some uh, wind out of the sails of working 24-7 through the COVID uh, pandemic. But let me ask you a question first off. I'm very unconvinced by this kind of rise in infection rates, that it's anything more uh, than many, many more people being tested. The R rate going up is nothing more than uh, the data which moves the R rate, because every time you go back to school, the R rate goes up. Every time you go back to the pub, the R rate goes up. What's your take on it all? So it's the key question we're all asking. That's the question doctors, when they group together for a cup of coffee, say, what is going on? And we can't work it out. And we can't work it out because too many variables are changing all the time. On the good side, the positive side, is that the hospital admissions, whilst they've gone up slightly in certain parts of the country, have not gone up very much. And the people don't seem to be as ill. It's nothing like it was Mm. in April when it looked as though the NHS could collapse because of everything. It's not like that. Most people that test positive are actually asymptomatic. They have nothing at all. Or they have very mild symptoms, nothing much more than flu or or, or a bad cold. So we generally don't know what to do. We're frightening people. The government's frightened people. This ridiculous rule of six, which is clearly made out of a committee, uh, let's call let's call it six let's do it differently in wales let's have 11 as the cutoff in scotland and 12 for the cutoff in in wales or the other way around i mm. mean it's impossible to understand the logic of the differences yeah. between it and so they're inexplicable i mean you couldn't stand up in a, a, a in a group of scientists and say this is my justification for this no. medical student trying you shout them down. You no, exactly. I mean, I was reading some reports the other day about France, which is now cutting down the numbers of people that can meet, and they've now cut it down to a thousand. You know, we're on six. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no comparison. Uh, but the best one, Mike, that I heard only this morning, one of my colleagues uh, brought it to my attention that whilst I can't take my grandchildren to the park with their parents to play on the swings, I could take them grouse shooting as yeah. many as I like grouse shooting. Now, how ridiculous is that? I know. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I was watching the news last night and the numbers of people, they had loads of people, women uh, in groups with their children, toddlers groups, that kind of thing, being apprehended by police officers and told they've got to break it up. I know. I mean, imagine the riot squad comes, tear gas, uh, rubber bullets, break up this children's party. I mean, it's... How have we got to this? I mean, you know, patience is wearing thin with people using the full force of the law. And, that you know, I feel sorry for the police having to implement it because it's clearly ridiculous and their heart can't, can't be in that sort of thing. Well, I don't know. They look a bit more enthusiastic about it than I'd like to see them, to be honest. <laughs> Really? There weren't any riot gear, I hope. Well, no, 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 no riot gear. But here's another stat that I saw over the weekend, right? 20% apparently of all the people who are so far testing positive have actually got symptoms, which means that 80% don't. Exactly, exactly. And this is inexplicable. Now, we know there are a lot of false positives. I mean, basically, 
there are only five ways you can assess people if you want the whole story. One is by taking a story from them, a history. Secondly, by temperature checking. Thirdly, by antibodies. Then mm. by looking for PCR, the, the virus. Mm. And the problem with PCR, it picks up dead virus and live virus equally. Yeah. The more sensitive it is, the more chance you're picking up dead virus, which means that dead viruses causes no damage. They're not infectious and so on. And so that's the problem. It doesn't discriminate. The fifth thing is virus proteins in saliva, in the nose and mm. so on. Uh, and that may be the way forward, but it's not developed yet. So we're sort of at the cusp of that. But as in a lot of medicine, you know, it's totally imperfect. Doctors are used to working with imperfection in their analysis mm. as of gaps in an individual patient's workup. You're never going to solve them. You have to do it on the basis of experience and probability. We're in exactly the same place here. What's not good is the logistics. I mean, the stories of you know, a lady near Gatwick Airport living there, being sent to the Isle of Wight with her family for testing. Uh, you know, this is ridiculous, mm. absolutely ridiculous. And you think in a modern age, with they, you know, the, the number of civil servants involved, the number of very senior politicians involved, we come up with something better. Well, this is it, because we've been obsessed with testing ever since the beginning uh, of the lockdown, where, first of all, you know, every single day, the media would be asking the question, how many tests have you managed to do today? Is it not enough? Is it 100,000? Is it 200,000? Uh, are you sending out more than one test to more than one person? And it seems to be that they're more obsessed with the actual testing than the results of the testing. What you do with those results, Results because to me it doesn't matter how many people you test if you misinterpret those results then it's no use to anyone and if the test's imperfect yeah. which it clearly is we, we admit the test is not straightforward uh it's not a plus minus it's not like that and yeah. that, that's the whole problem with this but if you actually think mike going forward what are we going to do here yeah um there's one option is just to forget about the whole thing and say let's relegate it to the level of a common cold or yeah. flu or something and not worry about it the danger is the next few days will tell us if the hospital admission don't go up significantly, uh, and, and certainly hospital admissions mean there may be significant deaths if mm. they did go up. But if they don't go up, there won't be significant deaths. And I think we just have to get back to normal life as quickly as possible. I think the government have panicked yet again, scared by a group of epidemiologists and, and very cautious scientific advice to say just let's let's put some breaks on the social meeting that's the rule of six and all the other things that come from it and uh, i think we've got to try and get out of it quickly right and the other thing is you you can go grouse shooting you can go to the pub with as many people as you like sure you can only go in a group of six but there's nothing to stop 12 groups of six picturing up in the same pub right. so uh, very difficult. No, exactly right. I mean, I don't know what you make of this story. I was looking at this yesterday. Coronavirus uh, hospital beds crisis in Marseille, apparently. Uh, apparently close to saturation point. Now, nobody's too sure precisely what's going on there, but I don't know whether you've heard why that would be so many new infections and so many people being hospitalised. Yeah, Marseille is a very interesting place. And the last 48 hours has been a, a, a real peak, a local peak yeah. in that part. France. And, uh, you know, again, we're waiting to see what's going to happen, how seriously ill the people are, how many end up on a ventilator, which is the, you know, the chances of survival if you're put on a ventilator are around 50%. So it's clearly not a good place to go. Right. And so to measure the number of people in what our Department of Health call ventilatory beds, ventilation assistant beds, assisted beds. Um, and that covers a whole range of different techniques right. to try and 
sustain oxygen in people that have had COVID. So, um, you know, when we go back to April the 8th, which seems years ago now. It does. You know, that that was a real problem. And it looked as though intensive care beds were filling up fast. Now, intensive It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Pain units are used for what they're meant to be, for post-operative recovery, for routine surgery. So that's good that mm. that's the case. Yeah, no, I mean, we've been hearing for many, many weeks now, I think, Professor, and you've been one of the people telling us that that most of the COVID wards in this country are practically empty. Nobody's in them. But obviously, if that starts to change and these numbers of infections turn into hospital admissions, then I suppose we should be worried about that. But I just don't see that happening. I don't see it happening either. But then, you know, I get shut down by my epidemiology guys. Oh, this is the second. It's like the second coming, you know, here. (laughs) <laughs> and it will swamp us over. The tsunami of COVID is coming. Mm. You'll have to stop cancer treatment again. Stop haranguing us, Carol. That we don't want to hear about your cancer diagnostic pathways being broken. Uh, we've got a problem coming. So, you know, the next few days are critical. Just looking at the numbers, they're issued every 24 hours, and they're easy to follow. Key performance indicators from for hospitalisation and for intensive care, and those those are the critical numbers. The ministers are looking at them too, and the scientific advisors are looking at them. You know, every twenty four hours, and uh, forget what goes on in Marseille. There's bound to be a place somewhere in the world where there's a crisis. What amazes me, if you go to very high incident countries, Latin America, for mm. example, massively high in India, the actual hospitalizations are actually quite low, really? and and proportionately, the deaths are low, even in poorer parts of Latin America, such as Peru and, and uh, Paraguay and so on down there, where the average income is low, the medical care is not mm. the great at the best times. And yet they seem to be coping very well. And they don't have this psychological problem that we've developed a project of fear, basically. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? That, that, that I mean, I've, I've been talking to people over the course of the last, say, month or so, um, and indeed before that, um, and there was definitely a sense that confidence was returning a little bit, that schools were going to go back last week, finally, uh, that more people might come into the cities. And that's all been knocked for six now by, by this rule of six. Completely. And people don't know where to turn. And, you know, I was supposed to be the positive professor. <laughs> and even I think, what is going on here? But I think... We are going to get out of this somehow, and I think it's going to come sooner than we think. And I think as long as those hospital admissions don't go up, then up significantly, we're going to be fine. Mm. Um, the important thing is the fact that in some of the 
the papers today. Again, the, the cancer and heart disease deaths will far outweigh the COVID deaths unless we get the NHS kick-started again and back into full gear. Yeah, and I mean, I found it amusing this morning. I already pointed this out to people that The Guardian uh, has a story uh, that says anxiety in the UK, cases have trebled in a decade. Well, is it any wonder The Guardian spends every single day telling people how terrible life is, how terrible it's going to be. Uh, they've got another story about post-Brexit chaos on the front. They're telling everybody they're going to die of uh, COVID-19. I mean, no wonder people are a bit more anxious. You know, I, I think the best way to get out of this, don't read the papers, don't listen to anything <laughs> other than your programme. Well, that's a very good piece of advice, Professor Carol Sakura, and very well put. But listen, let me ask you one final question. At what point does the government realise or uh, or confirm, if you like, that there is no second wave? Because it seems to me they're going to be going all the way through autumn, all the way into winter, warning that it's going to come. And if it doesn't come, say, by December, what do they do then? They have to admit it and get things working again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what the irony is they've driven the economy through. They've driven people getting back to work. London is busy again, or comparatively. Well, bits busy. of it are. Bits of it are very quiet. Exactly. <laughs> I suppose the city is still quiet. Yeah. People working from home. But a lot of it is getting back. Trains are getting busier, at least in London, not mm. coming out of London. Uh, and I think once it's admitted that, you know, People aren't getting ill with the rise in infections, and a lot of it is due to the nervousness and the increased testing and and the better testing that's now available, saliva testing and so on. Then I think we can all move forward and get back to our normal business Mm. and uh, everyone can begin to relax. What I find amazingly good is that the schools have gone back. I've got grandchildren and it is just amazing and it's uh, it's lovely to see Mm. and they with it children are so malleable they understand about the virus they wash their hands they're not worried about things mm. we are as adults that's the problem we've got to relax look at the kids and be more like them yes very good advice again professor carol sakura thank you very much indeed he is of course former head of the who cancer program uh, dean of medicine at the university of buckingham as well two very very excellent pieces of advice be more like your kids accept what your lot is do not in any way worry about what might not happen and of course only listen to the independent republic of mike graham and talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Fascinatingly, yesterday, I have to say, I think we were all stopped in our tracks when the story came out from a a team of researchers at the University of Cardiff and other parts of the country uh, that actually uh, scientists have discovered there might well have been signs of life on Venus. Now, there's not much that we know, really, about Venus. We talk about Mars quite a lot. We talk about the Moon, obviously. We talk about Jupiter. We talk about Saturn's rings. I don't know much about Venus, other than uh, that it's known as, like, the evening star, because it's one of the first things that you see uh, in the night sky. But let's talk now to Emily drabek Monda, who's an astronomer at the Royal Museums of Greenwich. Emily, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. Not at all. Um, what can you tell me about Venus? Because I feel as though I'm a bit ignorant when it comes to Venus. I don't feel like we talk about it very much. So Venus originally was kind of known as Earth's twin or Earth's sister planet right. um, until the 1960s. And that's when we first started sending spacecraft out to the planet. But actually, Venus is incredibly hostile. We kind of found a hellish sort of landscape there. Mm. 
um, temperatures on the surface of Venus are about 500 degrees Celsius. Blimey. And it has pressures high enough to crush the human body. Um, and then on top of all of those things, it then has clouds that surround the entire planet made out of sulfuric acid. Mm. So it's not necessarily <laughs> a nice place. No, it doesn't sound very habitable, I have to say. No, so when with our study, what we were doing is studying the clouds themselves. And so the clouds, even though they are made out of sulfuric acid, they are a little bit more hospitable. Mm. Um, so they're slightly colder temperatures, um, so around 20 to 30 degrees Celsius, and they have more reasonable pressures, more similar to the Earth. Right, okay. And as far as the discovery uh, is concerned, the sign of life on Venus, what did you actually find? So we found this rare gas called phosphine. And on rocky planets um, like the Earth, phosphine gas is directly connected to life. So it's what we call a biosignature. Mm. And specifically on the Earth, uh, phosphine is connected to human activity through industry, as well as uh, it's produced by microorganisms or microbes. And so it's a really exciting thing that we found phosphine gas then on uh, another rocky planet like Venus because it, it does mean life here on the Earth. Right. So you wouldn't have expected to find it there at all. So how did you find it? How, how was that sort of organised? Did you, did you, I mean, have you sent a probe there? Have you just spotted it? What, how did it work? So we actually just used ground-based radio telescopes to okay. search for phosphine gas. So we used a telescope in Hawaii called the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope that made the initial discovery. And then we confirmed that discovery uh, with another telescope in Chile called ALMA. Mm. Wow. And so uh, how, how, I mean, when you're in this kind of research group, it must be quite exciting when you suddenly fall upon something like that. What was, what was the moment like when it was discovered? I think with the discovery of the first detection of phosphine, everyone was kind of shocked. When we first set out to do this study, we didn't actually think we would find phosphine gas. Um, it was, which sounds a bit strange, mm. but actually not finding a gas in an environment in space can still be really beneficial to us. We thought we wouldn't find it and then would be able to kind of rule out some possible conditions for life in right. the clouds of Venus. Okay. But then once we found it, it was just such a big surprise and right. a shock. And, and it was just really exciting. And is it possible to know sort of how long it's been there? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the phosphine gas is actually destroyed after a couple of months. Mm. So something has to continuously replenish that phosphine gas that we see. And so we're not entirely sure what is behind the phosphine gas. It could be some sort of unknown chemistry or geology on the planet Venus that we just don't know about. But it could also be life up in the clouds of Venus. Wow. And I mean, as far as Mars is concerned, when we talk about life being found there, it tends to be sort of centred around maybe droplets of water or possibly ice or something like that, or microorganisms. When, when you guys talk about life, you don't necessarily mean like little green men, do you? No, absolutely not. So we're not talking about complex and intelligent beings in right. this case. We're talking about a more subtle form of life, like microbes or microorganisms. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why we have to search for gases that they might produce, um, because we don't see, you know, the kind of remnants of civilizations mm. or anything like that. We're looking for something much smaller. Okay. And so what can you do with this information? How, how can you sort of move it on? Will you, will you, is it worth sending a probe of some kind up there? Absolutely. So in, in the meantime, what we can do is see if phosphine changes over time. Um, I think that's really important. As Venus orbits the sun, it's possible that phosphine can, can change over time. And that can tell us something about 
what might be producing this phosphine, if it's life or it's or if it's through some sort of unknown chemistry. Right. Um, but in the long run, we really need to send spacecraft in order to confirm the possibility for life uh, on yeah. Venus. And as far as other planets are concerned, are you doing similar work with those? Are you, are you looking at those in the same way? Um, so we've not um, pursued phosphine uh, observations with other planets, but I think that is something that really needs to be done for the future. So, for example, exoplanets are planets in other solar systems. Mm. They're outside of our solar system. Um, and this could potentially be a really good way to, especially for rocky exoplanets um, like Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars, um, if we could uh, search for life by by looking for this sort of gas. Okay. And I said earlier that the, the one thing we do know about Venus is it's the evening star. Um, why is it that it's the one sort of planet that we can see mostly? I mean, I know sometimes you can see Mars and Venus, which is kind of cool uh, when in, so in, in, they're quite close to one another. But why is Venus specifically the one that we can see most? Well, so Venus is um, really close to us. And so just because of how close it is to us, it's going to reflect... Um, kind of more sunlight back mm. to the Earth. And so that's why we can see it. Um, now we can see Venus in the early morning, um, just before sunrise. But you also have quite a few other planets to choose from in the evening. So we can also see Saturn, Jupiter and Mars right now in the, in the evening. Oh, wow, time. really? I mean, with, yeah. the, with the naked eye or need a telescope? No, don't need a telescope. You can just go outside and, and look up and you'll be able to spot Oh, I them. must do that the weekend because I won't be in the city. So in the city, it's always difficult. And it's very hazy looking out there at the moment. I'm seeing the, uh, the just vaguely making out the, the, the roof of the Tower of London because it's so hazy. But um, uh, I'll be looking out for all of that. But that's fascinating stuff. And you must feel very, uh, does this put you into the kind of first division of scientists now that you've made this discovery? Yeah, it, it's just been an, a really exciting time. I think it's it's taken the entire team um, you know, it, it's caught us a bit off guard, but um, I, I think it's just an exciting time for everyone. And we've had lots of really good feedback. Um, so hopefully the entire scientific community will start really considering Venus as a uh, possibility for life. Wow. Great stuff. Emily, thank you very much indeed. Emily Drobek-Monda, astronomer at Royal Museums Greenwich, co-author of the research, co-discoverer of the research as well. It's on the front page of the Times this morning. Forget Mars, scientists find a sign of life on Venus. How exciting. I can't wait to start looking out for Saturn. I didn't know you could see that. I wonder if you see the rings as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So a nation has basically turned to drink, according to this study. Britain turns to drink, front page of the Daily Mail. Number downing, high-risk levels doubles during pandemic, and the middle class are the worst offenders. Let's talk to Professor Sir Ian Gilmore, chair of the Alcohol Health Alliance, to find out what he makes of it all. Uh, Professor Sir Ian, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, we've always had a bit of a problem in this country with alcohol. Um, I don't know whether it's getting worse, you might be able to tell me, uh, or whether we've always had the problem. I think we've always uh, had problems. We've always tended to be a binge drinking culture compared to uh, many other societies mm. like uh, Southern European countries who tend to be tipplers. We tend to be bingers. Mm. And we're certainly seeing harm rise over the last couple of decades. I mean, hospital admissions from alcohol are really at an all time high at the moment at a time when we can least afford it because of COVID. Yeah. I mean, interesting that uh, I don't know whether you've seen the uh, the actual quiz that's in the Daily Mail or whether it was inspired by this particular study. Um, but one of the things that they ask is um, during the past year, have you been unable to remember what happened the night before because you've been drinking? Now, I'm glad I was able to answer never to that. Uh, during the past year, how often have you had a feeling of guilt or remorse after drinking? 
I was also able to say never to that. Um, have you ever, have you or someone else ever been injured as a result of your drinking? So, I mean, it's interesting that, that those are the kinds of questions that people are now being asked. I mean, I think that they're, they're very pertinent questions and they certainly relate to uh, whether someone is at risk of alcohol dependence. I mean, there are, you know, there are 1.5 million dependent drinkers uh, in the country and, and they're, they're a huge burden in terms of, uh, you know, loss of time from work, using up health service time. And particularly now, it is, this, it is, this, it is the strain on the health service. Mm. And what do you think the reason is? I realise this is probably a very wide ranging question and a possibly even wider ranging answer. But why do you think it is that British people are so kind of interested in drinking? Well, as you say, it is a long-standing culture, but culture can be can be changed by quite um, simple measures. For example, uh, if you go back 10 years, most alcohol was drunk in pubs and bars. Now, 80% of all drinks except beer uh, is drunk at home. Yeah. And that's been, that's been driven by cheap supermarket drink. Uh, it used to be more expensive to buy a bottle of beer and take it home from the pub than it was to buy it in the pub. Right. Now... People say, why should I spend um, you know, six, seven pounds on a drink when I can get the whole bottle right. next door and take it home? Mm. So you can change culture by, uh, by uh, regulatory measures. But also, I think we do need to all just look at ourselves. Uh, there's hardly a family that's not been touched by the impact of alcohol mm. harm. Uh, we've just done a commission on alcohol harm, and it, we've listened to the stories from individuals, families, particularly children, brought up by alcohol-dependent parents, those children are twice as likely to be dependent on alcohol themselves in later life. They're more likely to have mental health issues. They're more likely to commit suicide. So as a society, I think we need to try and move away from this normalization of alcohol, where it's in the middle of every celebration and where people feel uncomfortable if, 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 if they decide not to drink. Well, one of the things that we all wrestle with, uh, with teenage kids, for example, of which I have two, uh, is whether you let them drink or not. And, and uh, you know, I remember, I think I had my first drink when I was about 14. I was working in a place where the owner of the bakery where I worked would drink beer in the afternoon uh, and he would give me a beer. Um, you know, I didn't think there was any harm in it, really. Um, but you might say others would say, well, that's horrendous. What were you drinking at the age of 14? I've now got a 16-year-old son who we occasionally allow to have a beer. It is a difficult problem, and you know, and I, I sympathise with 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 parents. Uh, and there is this this um, idea that if you introduce children to alcohol younger in the home in a controlled environment, then the outlook will be better. Uh, unfortunately, the facts do not support that, and the evidence really points to the fact that the earlier children start drinking, and the more they drink when they start, the more likely they are to have alcohol problems in the future. Yes. And I suppose um, there's peer pressure presumably on them as well. I mean, I think there's some parents who are thankful that they're just drinking the odd beer rather than smoking dope or something, you know? Well, but yes, there, there is that to it. And there's certain, you know, I think people look at the French and say, oh, yes, they give them watered down wine at the age of 11, 12. And Spanish look, they have as well. Less- Yes, that's right. But the evidence at the moment does not support that. And the chief medical officer's advice is not to give children alcohol before the age of 16. Uh, and But in that context, probably in the family environment is, is better. 
But I think the most important thing is that children don't listen to what their parents say. They mm. watch what their parents do. Yes. And too, many, too many parents are saying, don't go out and get drunk when they're already tipsy themselves at home. <laughs> well, that's the problem. I mean, they've tried. I mean, do you also wonder, because we talk about food quite a lot in this country now and obesity, and I wonder whether the availability uh, is, a, is an issue as well. Because when I was growing up quite a, a few years ago, um, you know, there wasn't the same amount of alcohol on show and certainly on sale as there is now. You don't more or less have to go to an off-licence um, whereby you would have to kind of look through a, what, what looked like a rather sort of curious collection of bottles um, to buy whatever it was you were buying. Now, you walk into a supermarket and quite often there's wine sort of front and centre as you walk in, in boxes, uh, being offered on sale. Absolutely. And, and we, you know, we're one of the most liberal countries in that respect. Mm. Most countries uh, would have alcohol in a separate section, often having to go to a separate till, um, Whereas in, 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 and even now in Scotland and in Republic of Ireland, that, that you have to have alcohol in a separate area. You can't have a, a big special offer as you walk into the store. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and look at France. Uh, there's a complete ban on broadcast advertising of alcohol. There's a ban on sports sponsorship mm. by alcohol companies. Um, whereas, you know, we are bombarded by alcohol adverts in this country. and They're on social media children have access to them and as far as the um, um say the scottish situation goes which you mentioned they started this minimum pricing of alcohol um it seems to be mixed as to whether people think that's a success or not i think it's it it, it is probably too early to know because the final analysis will be what happens to the to, to the harm that people suffer but preliminary evidence is on the whole supportive uh, we've also got it's it's underway in Wales. It's it's going to get underway in the Republic of Ireland. Mm. North of Ireland is interested. The UK government in Westminster need to have a proper alcohol strategy. They've dodged it since 2012. Uh, they put it in the too difficult box. The drinks industry is too powerful. Until they sit down and really look at the the cost of alcohol economic cost of alcohol, not just to the health service, to, to law and order, and many other things, loss of time from work. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be an investment to put a bit of money into an alcohol strategy. Well, it would. But of course, the, 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 the drinks industry, I suppose, would argue that they make an awful lot of money for the government. They generate an awful lot of tax. They also employ an awful lot of people. The whole hospitality business that we've heard so much about uh, in recent times is, is kind of being knocked over uh, by the lack of people going out. But yet the sales of drink haven't gone down. But let, let's have a let's have a proper argument. Let's have a proper discussion with government. Let's look at the figures. Uh, my understanding is that actually it would, to, if we could, if we could ease back on the nation's consumption, it would save money rather than uh, than lose money. Yes, indeed. So, what would you like to see um, as um, a government policy here, Sirian? Well, I think the the first thing I'd like to see is a proper alcohol strategy using evidence-based methods. We know that the three big drivers of how much we drink and how much harm we see are price, availability, and marketing. You've highlighted some of those uh, very well yourself. Mm. We need to address those, but there's also the uh, support for people who are already in trouble. The problem is that so many of these treatment services have been farmed out to, to, to third sector and private providers going to the cheapest tender. Mm. 
It's a very soft underbelly where money is short in local authorities to cut back on treatment services. And we know that actually money spent in treatment services again saves money. It stops, it stops these revolving door patients going in and out, in and out of hospital if they can be managed properly and helped. And these people deserve help. I mean, alcohol dependence is, is an illness. Um, there's a strong genetic component to it. You often find it runs to a degree in, in families. Mm. Uh, it's very easy to think this is somebody else's problem. But actually, as I said earlier, there's, there's hardly a family that hasn't been touched by alcohol at harm in some way. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And, and in a way, because of all of those things that you mentioned, it makes it even more surprising, I suppose, that, that the consumption levels haven't gone down. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there are some encouraging uh, signs, and one is that young people seem to be drinking less uh, than they did perhaps 10 years ago. But uh, I think a major concern is the drinking habits of the middle age and, and older, yeah. uh, where, where often they're less able to tolerate the alcohol. They often have other illnesses. They're often uh, on medication. Uh, you know, I remember an intensive care specialist telling me the problems they have with elderly people falling downstairs at night and sustaining head injuries right. when they've won too many. Yes, it's quite an extraordinary state of affairs, really. But, I mean, I can't see it changing, I have to say. I mean, I don't know whether any of those measures might work. But I really, I mean, I just think our relationship with, with drinking in this country is so kind of um, endemic and, it, and is so kind of traditional almost that, that it's hard to imagine it changing, really. Well, I, I, I'm not so pessimistic as that. And I think if, if you know, I mean, how, how many health warnings have you seen about alcohol on on the television. I mean, you know, most people are, in, are totally unaware of any problems from alcohol to their health, except possibly people know about cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. Very few people know that uh, there's a strong link to quite to several common cancers like colon cancer, breast cancer. Uh, women who drink are more likely to get breast cancer. Not many women know mm. that. I mean, did, it feels. It does feel to me that, like before COVID, the general um, uh, medical council and the chief medical officers were quite often issuing sort of edicts about, you know, you shouldn't drink more than one glass of wine uh, a week, or you shouldn't have more than this many units, or you know, one glass of wine which is red might be okay. I mean, they used to talk about it quite a lot. Well, yes, absolutely, and you know, the, the, there were new guidelines brought out by the chief medical officers of the UK in i think it was 2016 uh, those are still not on the majority of labels uh the drinks industry undertook to put put uh, uh these things on drinks labels they've palpably failed to do that and it needs regulation we know that uh, it's not in the drinks industry uh, interests to uh to roll over and, and tell people about the harms of alcohol we need the government to do it for them no, quite. Well, listen, uh, I, I dare say that uh, everyone will be filling out their uh, uh, their Daily Mail questionnaire here and seeing how problematic their drinking is. Uh, Professor Serene Gilmore, Chairman of the Alcohol Health Alliance. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's take some calls on that. 0344 499 1000. I mean, I would say anyone who is a relatively moderate drinker would fill out this form and would score uh, over the odds, which is eight points, which means you are either drinking harmfully uh, or hazardously. That's what it means. I think most people in Britain would probably be in that particular category. Not necessarily dependent, which is the next one up, uh, but certainly hazardous, according to this. But, you know, 
Only you can tell whether or not your drinking is dangerous. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.